Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. This is the final episode, I hope, of the L section. We'll see if that works out. I'm going to try to do this. T1lib. That's Type 1 Font Rasterizer Library. It's a library donated by IBM a long time ago to the X11 project. And it uh, takes Adobe Type 1 fonts and generates character and string glyphs from that specification. Uh, it's, it's why we have, it's why you can just drop in a, you know, a, a type one font, whatever that is, TTF, I don't know, um, and, and, and have a font appear on your screen. That, that is exactly why. So that's an exciting thing. Next is taglib. It is an audio metadata library. It reads and edits metadata of several popular formats, including, of course, MP3, but also AUG Vorbis and FLAC. And it does ID3 version 1 and ID3 version 2. Of course, this is a library. It is not a user-facing binary. Like, I mean, there are, there's taglib-config and taglib-extras-config or something. And I, I think those are, I, I think those are associated with this, are they? Yeah, they are. Well, taglib-config is associated with this. Okay, this, that, that does ship with this package. But that's not, it's not really, you can't really do anything with it. I mean, in terms, you know, if you're looking to tag a, an audio file, you're not going to use taglib. Taglib is a, as its name implies, library. And so you're going to be looking at this if you're programming. There are a bunch of header files and a lot of them are kind of almost self-explanatory. There's like mp4 um, file.h, there's flac, there's um, mp3 maybe? I don't actually see that one. There's og, there's impeg, there's impeg. Uh, opus, speaks, a, a bunch of different things that you're gonna, you know, you, a lot of header files there that, that are kind of obvious if you're looking, if you're writing an application where you also need to like read the metadata of of, of files that your user is providing, then taglib is uh, one of those libraries you're going to use. Taglib-extras is the next package. That one does include taglib-extra-config. Um, uh, and this was split off from the Amarok project, apparently, uh, to deliver support for reading and editing even more audio formats, like ASF, don't know what that is, to be honest, MP4V2, RMFF, don't know what that is, and wave files. Um, so yeah, that's kind of cool. Amarok, of course, was a music, a very, very popular music player for a while. Um, it was one of those applications that I feel like it was kind of a, I guess, a killer app uh, from uh, on Linux. Really, I mean, it was it was quite popular. A lot of people quite enjoyed Amarok, myself included. That was my music player for a very long time. It had a pretty good following. Lots of people were into it lots of extra things being developed for it. And then suddenly, like, it just kind of, I don't know. I, I don't know where it went. It just kind of disappeared. And when I say it disappeared, I mean, 
it you know i lost sight of it because it wasn't being in uh being included in slackware anymore like if it's in slackware i know it exists and if it's not then it's it's it may as well not exist practically um there was a release i guess an alpha release back in 2021 and they acknowledge in the release notes you read correctly after a long hiatus and all developers busy with real life the cute 5 port has had to wait but finally thanks to the dedicated work of a few hardy developers Pedro and Heiko, we are proud to present the technical preview of the next Amarok 2.9.71, which is um, also known as Amarok 3.0 Alpha. And that was in 2021, and I I don't believe that they've had progress at least to their to their website since then. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, with that kind of um, with that kind of kind of delay. When a project does that, I, I feel like it's difficult to get back into it because it's it's like, well, 2021, but so when's your next one going to be? And maybe 2021 was turned out to be, you know, that's all it took. Like, it's bang, it's done. It's better now. But I don't know. It's it's hard to to kind of get back into it after after sort of that that breach. I don't I don't want to say I don't want to sound over dramatic. I was going to say breach of confidence, but it's not a breach of confidence. It's just you know you you you're just not sure about the future of the project, and so you kind of hesitate to sort of throw yourself into it again. Um, but I would love for Amrock to come back full full swing. I, I really would. I think that would be great. Um, I'm using Elisa now, as I've said before, E-L-I-S-A. It's a nice little QML, I guess, based uh, player. It's fine. It more or less is laid out the way I laid out Amarok anyway. So, well, actually, it's a little bit inverted. But yeah, it's 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 got all the components I used in Amarok. It fits the peculiar way I choose to uh, consume my music. So it's fine. It's just not great. And, and Amarok was kind of great. So I would love to see it come back. But... Not, not today, I guess. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that, that's not, there's no judgment here. Like, that's, that's fine. Like, I understand developers get busy. Projects have to wait sometimes. Um, luckily there are other projects to kind of take the place, but I would not mind seeing Amarok come back. So, T. Alloc. That's the Memory Pool System Library. It's a hierarchical reference counted memory pool system with destructors. There you go. Um, this is used by the Samba project to allocate memory, as you can imagine. And part of allocating memory is then sort of deallocating memory. Be, I mean, you've got garbage collections and things like that, so maybe maybe you don't have to worry about that so much. But it is a nice feature to have. Um, the main goal of talloc is to remove the needs of creating a cleanup function for every complex structure. And the way that it does that is that it allocates memory in a hierarchical structure of talloc contexts such that deallocating it like one context revert uh, recursively frees up all of its de- de- descendants as well that's such a brilliant design um i mean which doesn't surprise me samba so the samba project is is one of the coolest projects i think they do amazing work consistently amazing work and and it's so cool that yeah that this exists i mean i don't know you know i mean to me 
it sounds like, oh my gosh, well, why isn't everyone sound, uh, using T alloc? Like I wouldn't, why would you use anything other than that? And I don't know. I don't know the, the, the subtleties involved in, in choosing your memory allocation library, but that there's one that you might want to look at, T alloc. All right, next up is the Tango icon theme, which I assume is included here, uh, probably for XFCE, I would think. Well, I mean, you could use it for other desktops as well, but like for GTK applications, I guess. Um, the Tango project is, it was great. It was, or is great. I don't know if it's still around, to be honest, but, um, it, it was, is the, um, the, the, I guess the official sort of look and feel in a way, at least in terms of, you know, as, as, as much as an icon defines a look and feel of the freedesktop.org project. Uh, if you go to tango.freedesktop.org these days, it doesn't, it's not found, it doesn't exist. So I don't know if it's still sort of a thing for the free desktop or org or not, but, but Tango was the official icon set for, for really the GNOME desktop for a very long time, I think. Um, and it just kind of provided a reliably consistent, attractive, um, consistent design for, for the look of of files in a file manager, essentially. I mean, that's, you know, what more do you want? Or applications in an application menu. Um, and, and it had a color scheme and it had guidelines. You know, it, it had all these kind of strict rules around what an icon was allowed to look like, or at least a Tango icon was allowed to look like. And when you do that, you get consistency. So that's Tango icon theme. It's, it's really, really nice. I've, I've, I, I have a lot of admiration for Tango as a, as a, as a concept, like that kind of open source project with those kinds of of, you know, rules maybe sounds too strict, but like just a a scope or a a constraint of, of what, of, of what it can include. When you do that, I mean, yes, you're limiting user creativity and that sort of thing or contributor creativity, but sometimes that's what a project is, is the limitation of, of a thing. That's why it's a project. It's like, you can do whatever you want in life, but if you want to do this specific thing, that fits into this box, then you need to follow these rules. And, and I think that's a really great way of, of, of structuring things. And the result speaks for itself. Like Tango is a really attractive, I mean, look, I don't use Tango icons. So in, in a way it doesn't, you know, it's not that attractive, I guess, right? I use Breeze, but it's still, I still acknowledge that it's an attract, you know, it, it is a consistent and attractive looking sort of professional and yet fun kind of looking icon theme. And, and, that's sometimes all you need, really. You just want all your icons to look more or less the same, and it's uh, it's 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 hard. That's a lot of icons. So Tango existing and giving you a reliable set of icons for practically everything that you have on your computer is really useful. There's the next one, Tango Icon Theme Extras, which has more icons like um, iPods and Dell Pocket DJ DAP. I don't know what that is. Probably another media player. Yeah, so so more icons in, in Tango Icon Theme Extras. After that one, there's TDB. This is the uh, Trivial Database Library. It's a, it's a database API, is what this is. And it was developed, again, just like TALOC, by the Samba team for Samba. And, and that's why it's included in Slackware. And the, the idea was that, that a lot of times you have, like, databases in a project and maybe there are different databases for different aspects of that project or or whatever um or maybe even some ad hoc uh, databasing going on um 
And, and so the Samba team realized what what they needed was a trivial database API so that you could just make calls to a database without having to learn which database this was using or the structure of that database and so on. It's just simple, simple database calls to some database, TDB. Um, another T library is next, as you might expect. We're in the T section of the L section. Um, but the, the T event is also from Samba and it is based on T alloc, the allocation the, the memory allocation library. Uh, and this is the, um, this is the event system for Samba. So when something happens within Samba and you want another part of Samba to know about it, you're going to be using T event. Okay. Next up is tidy HTML or is it H? No. Yeah. Tidy dash HTML5. That's the name of the package. What that contains is a command called tidy. Um, and this is a, it's essentially a linter for HTML5 and XML. So if we do emacs dot, uh, let's do, um, index.html, I guess would work. And we do, um, well, let's just do a paragraph tag. Hello world close paragraph tag. Now, hopefully tidy won't be happy with that. So I'm going to do tidy of, uh, H uh, of, tidy space index.html and it says that it's found uh three warnings and zero errors which is a lot nicer than i would have expected um and it spits it out for me with the header information so doc type html html head meta name generator content equals html tidy for html5 title no title head close head open body p hello world uh close paragraph body HTML. So it, it, it actually gave me the header and the footer or what I would think of as a header and the footer. That is everything up to the body opening tag and everything from the body closing tag gave me that for free. So that's kind of cool to know about, to be honest, because that means what you can do as a, as a user, um, you, you could just write the HTML part that you care about and then have the, the, the top matter and the bottom matter auto-generated for you. So that's kind of cool. Um, but let's go in, do tidy HTML. Oops, I didn't, I didn't mean that. Uh, let's do emacs index.html and I'll, um, I'll do, let's make world strong, but then, um, let's close it with emphasis. So we open tag of strong, close with emphasis tag. Wait, emphasis, is that a, that's not a, not a tag. EM, that's what it is. Slash EM. Yeah. Okay. Getting my XML and HTML confused. Now this time it found, oh, four warnings and, uh, zero errors. Wow. This is nice. This is so, so nice. Um, and it, so it, it auto detected that there was, um, the incorrect tag, closing tag for EM. It says warning, um, in line one, column 10 warning, replacing unexpected EM with, uh, slash close EM. Uh, I don't know what that means it's not replacing em with em it, it it replaced it with hello strong world close strong so it actually corrected the error that it did find i i don't know what it would take for this thing to find an error because it's correcting everything i throw at it it's really really nice so this is tidy um well it's tidy and yeah you should use it like this is really really nice like this is a great little linter i should use it heck in fact let's do the the thing that I don't want to do and w get in uh, gnu world order dot info 
There's index.html now, a new one. Uh, and now I'm going to do tidy on it. Ooh, boy, that's a lot of output. 1,084 warnings and one actual, actual error. Uh, it, I can't find the error in this output, though, and it needs me to fix the error before it will auto-fix the warnings. That seems like a problem. Well, I can supposedly send the errors out to a file with dash dash file or just dash f. So tidy index.html dash f errors.log. Let's do that. Okay, that still spat out all of the output into my terminal and it hasn't given me my prompt back. It's a bit weird. Okay, maybe I'll control C out of that and then let's look Let's do a cat of errors.log. It's empty file. Okay, so that did not work. Uh, let's do a man tidy real quick. Is there a man tidy or is it just... Yeah, okay. Um, HTML, common use of HTML, supports two different kinds. Uh, dash, oh, it's just a dash. It's a single dash for five, but still dash F should have worked. And there's also a dash O for output, dash output or dash O write output to the specified file. I don't know what the difference between output and, oh, output is probably the corrected, the corrected thing. I don't know, it's not, it is not doing what it's saying that it's going to do. It, it just, it doesn't give me my prompt back. Okay, well, what if I pipe all of this, forget the output, pipe it, pipe the output, whatever, to grep and grep for error. Wow, that did not work either. I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're putting into, I don't know where this stuff is getting output to. Okay, there. I've just done a two greater than errors.log. Now let's look at errors.log. There we go. That did it. But boy, was that a, that, their options are not working. Um, so let's do a search for the word error. Here it is. Um, error is in line 6,772, column 16. Standard, uh, um, less than stdio.h, greater than is not recognized. So this is finding a little bit of a code sample in my show notes. And it's mistaking it, uh, for, for HTML because I didn't escape the, um, less than and greater than. So I'll go in and do that really quick manually. Ampersand hash uh, less than semicolon. Oh wait, is that? No, you don't put the hash in HTML, right? That's different. Um, that's, and then greater than, I think. I don't know. You know what? I, I don't know the HTML. I'll just do the, the, um, the XML instead. So I'll do ampersand hash 60 semicolon for the less than and greater than hash 62 semicolon for the greater than symbol. And I'll return, or I'll uh, save and quit that. And now if I run tidy index, there it goes. Okay, so now it has dumped the corrected output into a file. Now I don't, (laughs) interestingly, I don't trust the corrections enough to just accept this. So I'll I'll have to work on this. I, I know that the name, a name, a warning can be easily fixed with a ID. But if I fix it here, that's not going to do me any good uh, until next week because next week it'll get auto generated again and, and it'll have names. So I have to go and fix pod right as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was interesting. That was informative actually. That's really useful. I, I don't know that their application is working 
working the way that it's advertising it's working, but I guess close enough is good enough. Uh, and that's useful. So if you do HTML or XML, don't, don't overlook tidy. I didn't know about it. Okay, next up is UTF-8 proc. This is a Unicode processing library. It's for C. People, people need this for obvious reasons. UTF-8 is the wave of the future, uh, coming way too late to the game, but, but it's here. We have UTF-8. Luckily, it's great. Unicode is wonderful. Uh, ASCII is not all that great, as it turns out. I mean, not, not, not for the, the scope of, of computing that we have today. So this is, um, this is a library that provides Unicode normalization, case folding, and other things that you might need for UTF-8 encoding in C. And it's maintained by the Julia developers. That's interesting. So, I mean, it didn't start with the Julia developers, but apparently they took over maintainership for that. That's kind of cool. Um, all right, next up is V4. So we're out of the T's. We skip past the whatever's before, I think it's a U, right? T-U-V? Yeah. So um, we skip past the U's. There are no no, there, there, there was a U. What was I talking about? UTF. We just did that. Okay. T. Okay, that was the T's. U. UTF-8 proc. Okay, that's done. And now we're in the V section. That's V4L. That's video for Linux dash utils. And this is this, well, the dash utils, I guess I should just look really quick um, at the var log packages V4L utils. Uh, what is this? 1.2 two or something. Yeah. Uh, 1.22.1. Um, so this has a bunch of UDEV rules, uh, which is related to what I'm going to talk about momentarily. Uh, it also has a couple of include files, a couple, um, quite a few include files and some .desktop files for, um, for some, some of the default applications like QVID capture and so on. So let's back up a little bit. V4L, that's video for Linux. That is, that's the project that provides drivers to the kernel for video capture devices. And this is important because when you plug in something with video capture capability, you want it to show up as a video capture device, meaning that it shows up under slash dev slash video something, video zero, video, uh, video one, video two, or whatever. Unless, of course, it's a video blank data that is like a, a device used for closed captioning or teletext. That would be a slash dev slash VBI something, zero, one, two, and so on. And then there are others. There are other ways, like there are touch sensor sensors, V4L dash touch zero or one or whatever. Um, there are sub devices and, and radio tuners and modulators and lots of different things that apparently fall under the same purview. I don't know how all of those go together, but apparently they do, or at least they're close enough for the V4L project to, you know, find that it makes sense for them to to take that on. And once something's logged as a dev, you know, as a device under the slash dev file tree, of course, it is in theory, somewhat available to your users. Um, now, if you're a programmer and you're doing cool things with a video device, you're not going to be tapping in necessarily to slash dev slash video directly. You're going to just be, you're just going to query a video 4L library uh, and ask what kind of devices are here and where are they in, in on the system? And can I list them in this drop-down menu so my user can select between which of the devices they want to use, that kind of thing. 
So there are some header files, lots of header files in here to kind of help you um, do those kinds of uh, extra activities in, in your code. There are some UDEV uh, d um, files as well, definitions to to make some of those devices, depending on what they are, um, useful to the user. So, you know, it kind of depends on on what they are, obviously. I mean, there's lots of different ones in there. There's Xbox DVD, there's um, a Vega, a TerraTech, a TiVo, you know, all, all of these different sort of things. And, and one of the main um, features of the V4L utils package specifically is not just the V4L utilities, but also the DVB, the digital video broadcasting stuff, which is kind of important for really the new, like the, the new way of broadcasting television. Like very few televisions these days receive, um, well, does anyone receive like signal over air at this point? I mean, someone might, but yeah, certainly all the, you know, all the serious mainstream stuff. I mean, that's, that's all digital broadcasting now. So having access for that, if you're building your own um, digital, um, ah, I forget, video on demand type, type, uh, system, myth TV, uh, that sort of thing, you know, the, the, the TiVo alike, which, yeah, I mean, it's funny because no one, no one does any of that anymore. And yet people do still, you know, cause I mean, there is television and you can record it and you can watch it later. Uh, and so if you're building your own system to let yourself do that, uh, you're going to want all of these utilities, uh, DVR, that was the, that was the other DVR, Myth TV is DVR. Uh, so yeah, this is, um, this is really useful for that. V4L, big deal for just getting, just getting video input into your Linux box. Now you can, um, you can do a quick little test of a video device. If you have like a webcam plugged in or, or, you know, built in, then you can do a QV, uh, no, what is it? Q, QVidCap. QVidCap, and that'll open up your, like, that'll just show you your, you know, I think whatever's on video zero. I, I haven't actually tried it with more than one video capture device. I don't know how it would choose between, like, different devices. So, yeah, QVidCap, that ships with V4L. It's kind of a quick and easy test of just, like, okay, is the video camera recognized by my system and working? If you see yourself when you do QVidCap in real time, then it, that's working. Whether or not the application you're trying to also make see the video camera is working is a, a is another question but in terms of troubleshooting your webcam qvidcap is a great one hey it's time for a coffee break go get yourself a cup of coffee come back we'll finish up the l section <laughs> Brazil coffee from the southernmost dry goods store in the world, uh, unless there's one in Antarctica that I don't know about. So um, there is a, the next one. We're, we're we're very close here to the end. Like we are very very close. We've got maybe five more packages to go, and then we're done the libraries. We're we're into the networking. So that's exciting. But the next one up that we have to deal with right now is vid.stab. And vid.stab is a video stability um, library for use with like FFmpeg. And I used to install this manually myself, and then I would compile it into FFmpeg. But I think as of, I think it's been as of 15, I 
could be wrong, but I think as of 15, Slack, uh, Slackware has uh, included vidstab in it. So you don't even have to recompile. It, uh, you can, like, if you do um, ffmpeg dash um, capital F and then look through the output, capital F as in formats. Um, oh, that doesn't, that's not, that's not a valid. It just ignored, it just ignored it and um, gave me the exact output I wanted anyway. How about ffmpeg-v as in uh, version? Um, if you look through there and look for li- um, enable, dash dash enable dash lib vid stab, which you will see, I, I believe, unless I've, I don't think I've recompiled this, um, then you'll, no, I mean, surely it will be there because that's why vid stab is here. So yeah, uh, lib vid stab, that is the thing that that you would be using. To use vidstab, because this is a library, right? I mean, it's not, you're, there's no launchable application here. So you can use it s- directly from FFmpeg. And the way that you do that is you use a video filter in within FFmpeg. So that is FFmpeg-i foo.mp4, let's say. So that your input is foo.mp4. And then you do a dash f no, dash VF as in video filter, and then vid stab detect. That's the, the first filter that you need to use is, de- is de- the detection filter. And you can detect a couple of different things. You can look on the documentation um, to, to, to get all, you know, to get everything that you can detect. But the most common one, I think, as its name kind of implies, video stability, is shakiness. So vid stab detect equals shakiness, S-H-A-K-I, in ESS equals 10 colon accuracy equals 15 colon result equals quote transforms.trf close quote. Okay, great. Now you've got a file, you know, you've run FFmpeg on, on this file, foo.mp4, and nothing happens to the file, but it is analyzed. It's, it's the, the video stab detect filter is run over the video. And that results in a file called transforms.trf. You can use that data to then transform your video based on what vidstab has found. That would be ffmpeg-i foo.mp4 uh, space dash vf, another video filter. Vidstab transform equals zoom equals five colon input equals quote my transforms.trf close quote. And then your output is foo stabilized, let's say, dot mp4. And that adjusts your video according to whatever detection uh, vidstab found on your first run. So it's a two-step process. You have to detect first and then transform afterwards. But it works quite well. I've done it. Um, it works. I mean, when you're doing that, a lot of times you get sort of clipping in the corners or something like that. So you have to kind of account for that. But um, it, it can stabilize video. Okay, so next up is the VTE, which is the Terminal Emulator Widget. I'm assuming VTE much, much probably stands for like virtual terminal emulator. Maybe I'm not sure. Anyway, it's a it's a widget. So it's a it's a a panel a pane uh, that you'd put into a window so that you can embed a terminal into a, a GTK application. So for instance, uh, I could imagine Glade, for instance, using the the VTE. It might not. I, I haven't looked at the source code of Glade lately, but it, it might. It could use that for for the little terminal ter, ter, uh, terminal emulator down at the bottom of the of the interface. Am I thinking of Glade or am I thinking of 
something different. And I think it's a Glade. Anyway, um, this specifically VTE is used by XFCE for stuff. So that's why it's here in Slackware. It is akin to in the Plasma desktop, if you press, if you if you go into a, a Dolphin window and then press F4, by, by default anyway, you get a little terminal in the bottom of the of your window, which mirrors where you are in your GUI, in your graphical view. It's quite quite cool. I use it a lot. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind, that's the kind of thing you might see VTE being used for. After VTE is WavePack, W-A-V-P-A-C-K. This is an open source audio compression format doing lossless and high quality lossy compression. I have never used WavePack. I've, I always compile it into FFmpeg. Uh, when I used to compile FFmpeg all the time, now it's just everything's in there anyway. Um, and, or at least everything reasonably, everything. Um, and, and I just, I've never used it. I don't know why. I've just never needed it, I guess. I don't use WAV files that often. I use them typically, if anything, as a temporary file format when one encoder can't take another format. You know, I'll just dump it out to Wave because that's pretty much taken by everything. So that's really all I use it for. Now, WavePack might be of interest to someone if they were using a Wave file and wanted to compress the Wave file. I, I don't, honestly, I don't, I can't think of the use case. But if you use Wave files a lot, there is a cool feature with WavePack where you can create a what's called a correction file. And this is a, a file containing basically the discarded parts of of your lossless file, uh, of your lossy file. So in other words, imagine taking a full quality digital photograph, a TIFF or a Targa or uh, e, um, e, EXR or whatever, and, and you make a JPEG out of it, but you get a correction file as well. And that correction file contains all the bits and pieces that were all the bits that were th- tossed out in order to get that full quality EXR down to a little tiny JPEG. And through a wave unpack command, you could then stitch those two things together. That's what happens with wave un- with wave pack. You, or at least that's an option. You don't have to. You can just say, make this a wave pack. We're done. That's all I want forever. But if you want to make it a lossy compressed file, but keep the, the diff, you can do that. It's the dash C option, create correction file, uh, which is a .wvc file. Uh, and that, that provides sort of this hybrid mode that lets you have both a lossy compressed file with the option to stitch it back together with the differential so that you have a lossless file again. I don't exactly, like I said, I can't actually think of the use case for that now that I'm saying it out loud. It reads like a cool option, and maybe it is a cool option. I'm just not sure what that option is. Like, I don't know why that's a thing, but it is clever. It is Either way, that's a pretty cool little feature. So that's WavePack, and I've actually never used it. I doubt if I will use it. I mean, I've known about it for such a long time now, and it's just never been something that I've thought, oh, I need I need WavePack. Um, it just doesn't... I, I use Flack for my um, for my lossless file storage because, I mean, the file size is just so much better with FLAC. It really is. All right, almost at the end here. W-O-F-F-2, WOF2, is a font compression library. It is popularized by Google for web use. Um, I, I have to say that fonts on the web used to be pretty 
difficult to manage, honestly. It was essentially, as I, as I recall, I, I believe that the your options were, I think, literally just like a set of Microsoft fonts. I, I could be I could be making that up, but I, I, I believe that it was just like a set of fonts that sort sort of shipped really with your browser, and and that was kind of what the internet could have on it because the internet didn't really have a font. It would instead assume that you had a specific set of fonts installed, Arial and Helvetica and Times and things like that, and then it would, it would in, in its uh, style sheet, which wasn't, you know, until CSS came along, the style sheet practically was just in HTML, but, but even after CSS came along, it would put in a style that the font was Arial or whatever whatever sans serif font you happen to have on your system or it would be times or whatever serif system, uh, font you had you happen to have on your system and and mono mono space or whatever so it was it was kind of this um sort of just assume assume that the user has configured their computer like the developer did and that's a little bit that that can be a little bit quirky now i think in in practice for most things that probably actually would work just fine like basically you know what are you what are you doing with your web page that you need the exact same font to exist well as it turns out people started kind of looking at web pages more as an artwork rather than a way to convey text and they wanted the design to look a certain way they wanted the spacing to to appear a certain way they they wanted sort of kind of a sense of certainty that the way that they've designed the page is also going to be the way that the user consumes it which on one hand i get i understand that like i i do i i sympathize on the other hand that is awfully presumptuous isn't it like i mean if 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 someone doesn't like your font then they're gonna change your font there's nothing you can do about it and they should be able to change your font uh, in worst case scenario i guess they could select all and copy and paste it and, and that's I, I guess that's another thing um as as much as you want your page to be consumed a certain way i mean someone might go to your page select all copy the text paste it into a text file and then go offline and read your your uh text you know on the on the subway or whatever so it's it, i think it was a little bit of an illusion that that would would work out but ultimately people wanted some kind of assurance that under ideal circumstances when no one else disagrees they could design a page that looked a specific way on most basically all other devices which i mean it's it's an impossible task and and i think people who are operating under these uh, the under the illusion that that that's true i think are fooling themselves because i mean it's just ultimately people have a lot of different devices out there and and there's just there aren't that many ways that there are lots of different ways to 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 get that information so anyway people still want the illusion and so in order for people to ensure that you had a font available to to view their website in basically started packaging fonts with their web page not not that you would download but instead the the browsers started obtaining the ability to look at a, a file, a font file on the internet and use its specifications when rendering the glyphs. But the, the another problem with this, once that started happening, was now now we're we're sending both a web page and a big old font file, potentially several font files, along with each web page. And of course, 
the internet's about speed. I mean, you got to render fast or people are going to navigate away. So there was this need to define fonts as they have been defined, but smaller. WOFF2 does exactly that. It compresses your TTF font so that you can send it over the internet quicker than you could just send a TTF file. You're, you're probably consuming WAF2 fonts without knowing it. They're, they, they come, you know, sort of, again, bundled along with a web page. And so you don't, we don't really have to think about it. The web browser is doing everything that it needs to do. WAF2 is useful though if you're literally, if you're, if you want to take a TTF font and make it, you know, compress it and then upload it to your server and then reference it in a web page or, or rather, you know, reference it in the style page, style sheet of your web page, thereby using the font on, causing the font to appear on your web page, you can, uh, thanks to WAF2. Next up is Zapian Core. I'm assuming that's a Zapian Core. It's X-A-P-I-A-N uh, dash core. And this is, um, well, it's a search engine and and by that I mean it's it's a it's a method by which things are indexed into a database and then searched and and, and returned based on some definition of relevance and that's that's the trick right there relevance I mean remember two episodes ago or one episode ago maybe I was talking about um, Nepomuk and the semantic social desktop and then that kind of made me think about sort of just how a computer knows that you care about a certain thing and how context matters and how how that how a computer is able to determine that sort of thing maybe i wasn't anyway i thought about that at that time and zapian core is a is what they call a probabilistic search engine so it it is designed specifically to to ideally like you know mathematically determine what a relevant result is based on your query and and that's a huge task and they they acknowledge that in the documentation and they list a bunch of different uh reading um resources in case you want to find out more about the, the literal maths behind their their query uh solution or their query resolution and it is really really fascinating and way way beyond me but all of the usual search engine stuff i actually used to work for a search engine company believe it or not um not 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 the big one um and and so you have like a database and then you've got your queries which returns a document meaning a document is anything returned by that database and then you have terms that describe the document and you may have lots of terms describing lots of different documents and and that's what zapian does but it evaluates sort of the 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 apparent relevance of a document based on your query and then tries to return the best results how does it do? I don't know. I don't know that I've ever used Zappian Core directly. Maybe I have. I, I'm not sure. But um, that's that's what it does. So searching is is one thing, and and Zappian does a lot of multi-threading because it doesn't maintain state, so you can pretty much spam it with requests. It doesn't care, um, you know, with multi-threads. Um, but so so it, it's supposed to be pretty fast, um, and and. And and then on top of that, it you know there's this layer of like, well, does does this apply to what this person needs right now? Which is a huge question. Um, there is an Omega Internet Search Engine as well uh, that they that they've written on based on Zapian Core. So if you go to zapian.org/docs/omega. 
you can get an overview of that. The docs for Zapian itself are well worth reading though. Like really digging into into the technology is is absolutely fascinating and just mind-blowing. I mean, it's just, they've put so much thought into it. It's very, very cool. So check that out if you're at all interested in that sort of thing. Um, or even if you're not, it's more interesting than you might think. It's really cool. So that's um, Zapian Core. I, I don't know, what, what, what I wonder what's using Zapian Core, really. Because, I mean, I, I do kind of wonder... Something must be using it. Um, and there's a b- bunch of commands as well for like database, you know, maintenance and stuff like that. Um, let's see, just try to find the actual library bundled in this thing. Uh, the actual library is libzapian. And yeah, LDD cycling through everything in user bin anyway, real quickly confirms that it's kind of what I suspected, Akinati. So Akinati, the, the component of the personal information management suite, PIM for KDE, that apparently is using Zappian core. So that, that kind of makes sense. I figured it had to be either that or Baloo. And does Baloo use it? Where is Baloo anyway? There it is, Baloo uh, underscore, no, let's do Baloo search. Um, and then do a grep for Zapian, I guess. No, that does not use Zapian. I think Baloo must use, I don't know, Baloo or something. Or, or some other component of Baloo does, but but Baloo search does not. Um, yeah, it's using lib kf5 Baloo engine. That could be what it's using. Who knows? I don't know. But um, anyway, Zapian being used by Akinati. XX hash is next. This is an extremely fast hashing algorithm. Ships with a library, XX hash, or lib xx hash dot so and uh, dot zero dot eight dot one and uh, a little demo application xxh sum which you can use to get uh, you know hashes hash results from from files much like you would with sha sha um 256 sum or what is it sha no md5 sum sum yeah md5 sum um you could you can do that with xxh sum so xxh sum dash h is your algorithm selection so you've got 0 1 2 3 32 64 or 128 so i'll put in 128 and then i'll just get a hash for this um this hello world file that i've just generated uh and there you go that that was fast i guess i mean i don't think it's going to feel any less fast or more fast than sha256 sum for instance or md5 sum uh, from a from a terminal i don't think that's where they're trying to optimize the process uh, i mean maybe they are but i i think probably it's more more I- targeting like the actual library functionality so that if in a um in an application you're generating hashes several times you're not slowing things down by using some less slow library uh, I haven't done the benchmark tests myself, so I don't know. It could could be true, could be false. They do have nice graphs on their webpage, though. You can go look and see a bunch of sort of comparisons between XXH64 versus XXH128 and so on. So if you want to see how they compare to each other, you can get kind of a, a sort of a benchmark. That way there's a table with uh, benchmarks uh, based on different algorithms. So yeah, there, there's there's information there for benchmarking. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a potential source of information if you're concerned about the speed of your hashing algorithms. The penultimate pattern package in the L section is Zlib. It's a general purpose thread safe 
compression library. So this is um, kind of made famous for its very, very permissive license. Like you can just throw Zlib in. I think it has its own license, but it has been, I think it has served as the basis for several other sort of really, really sort of, you know, don't, don't worry about giving us credit or, or giving us code in return, just use it in whatever way you want to kind of license. Um, so this is a compression library with with everything written from scratch, you know, there's, so there's, there's no sort of patent infringement or or threats of patent infringement on some other um compression library which i mean you know it's, it's so hard to even conceptualize of how this could be a problem in in the modern day and age where there are so many other problems to worry about but you know there's um there are people who care about that sort of thing uh, or companies rather who care about the sort of thing um and and basically, if you need a zip file, zip, then 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 zlib is one way to generate a zip file, and and it's it's unencumbered by any patents because it is is written from scratch. I, I feel like it's um it's just hard to to imagine how yeah like compression could be something contentious, but there there you go. That's that's it's that's how things operate still. Uh, zlib is described in RFC uh, I think nineteen fifty and. The, I'm not doing this from memory. I'm I'm just looking, uh, scrubbing across a page, uh, and and it is um so it's it's an open spec. I mean, it's something that you can you can reimplement if you want to. I mean, it's a very very open source library, so you wouldn't really need to. But you can see it all there, and then it, with Zlib, of course, you can then generate zip files within your application. And as I've said before, I think on other zipping uh, compression libraries, it's very, very common and kind of a convenient way for an application or for a developer, if you want to create your own file format, to just zip it up. Call it whatever you want, but but just dump it into a zip container, and that way all of the assets that you need for that save file are all in one place. That's not always the best way for all applications. I mean, it would be really, really annoying if Caden Live, for instance, did that because I want my assets outside of any kind of, some kind of container. I, I need access to that across several projects. I wouldn't want it to be bundled up. But other, other applications, it just makes good sense. You know, like document creation, you would want all of the assets that you believe are in your document to really be in your document, even if it's just copied over into a zip file, which is of course what um, the uh, LibreOffice does, that the, the ODT format is a zip file with a bunch of XML and any images that you've dragged and dropped into your document and so on, it's all in there. It's all in that zip container. And the final package of the library set is ZStandard. ZStandard is um, another compression algorithm. Believe it or not, uh, that's what Z's are, right? That's what Z stands for in in computers, compression. So Z standard does uh, sort of excels at high compression uh, high compression ratios for small data. It implements something called dictionary compression. The problem that this is trying to solve is that with small data set, or with no, rather with small pieces of data, the the algorithm is not able to typically to learn from 
what's already been compressed because there's no by by the time you've compressed one thing and you're on to the next now you're not you're compressing something new you're you're not learning from the past the z standard apparently has a, a training sort of method training mode where it looks at the data all the little small bits of data and kind of makes some rules, some general rules over what can be compressed and, and so on. I, I don't know enough about uh, compression or dictionary compression or Z standard to say how all of that magic actually happens, but that's kind of more or less what they do. And and the numbers that they they provide on the on the on their web page is they're pretty good. They're they're yeah, lots of differences in in good places. The the web page is facebook.github.io slash zstd. That's Z standard. Uh, and yes, Facebook was the developer. They open sourced it in 2016, and it is now used all over the place. There's even graphical front ends to it by um by the the seven zip folks uh f- by the pzip uh project and a couple of other ones so it's it's a i guess a pretty effective little compression algorithm um it's one of those things where it's like i mean if it is being used it was developed and being used by by facebook love them or hate them they do have a lot of users and and they 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 do process a lot of data so if if they're using z standard as their real time compression algorithm then there's probably some value to the library if not to the company that created it so that's it that's the libraries those are all of them we're out of the l directory now and the next one for the next episode is the n as in networking directory I have no idea what we're about to to embark upon here. This could be a bunch of libraries that we can't use directly, or they might be a bunch of interesting applications. I have no clue. So we will find out together. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
imagination ran out when those doors opened. 